The Old Testament text is the 107th Psalm. Well, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly, and he does not let their, their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all the wickedness and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things, and let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. 
the word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this psalm, uh, uh, as uh, some preachers like to say, preaches. It's uh, something that all kind of just sort of uh, unfolds in a way that lends itself to preaching. Uh, but uh, it begins with uh, a call for the, redo- for the redeemed of the Lord to say so. See that in uh, verse 2, let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And then we're told at four points throughout the psalm that uh, those who enjoy the Lord's deliverance uh, should thank the Lord for his steadfast love. We see that in verses 18, 15, 21, and 31. And in this we see what speech is given to us for. It's given to us for thanking, for declaring the redemption that we have enjoyed because God has delivered us from our troubles. But it's also uh, something that we possess so that we can call out to the Lord during those times of trouble and uh, ask him to come and deliver us. So that's what speech is for. Now, in this psalm, we see four ways that we can find ourselves in trouble. Uh, there are four ways people come to cry out to the Lord, and you see those uh, uh, enumerated there in verses 6, 13, 19, and 28. But I want to note here, before I get into the details, looking at each of these uh, situations that God delivers people from, that uh, in each case, God gathers people. It's not as though God simply redeems and just leaves uh, people to themselves. But through the redemption, God gathers people uh, and he uh, gathers them together to dwell with one another. Um, We see a reference to a city. We see that in verses 4 and 36. Uh, So what we're talking about here is more than a personal relationship with Jesus. And I think that's something that can't be noted uh, too frequently in a a time like ours in which uh, the individual is the be-all and the end-all for everything. You are redeemed and then brought together with all the other redeemed so that you can dwell with them in a kind of city, a city that uh, is referred to in different places in Scripture. Remember, um, we're told that Abram uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 sought a city whose builder and maker is God And then we're told in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, that uh, there is a city waiting for us, or a city that descends, that has been made by God himself for us to dwell in and that we belong to. And there's an interesting sense in which uh, this provides us with a framework for thinking about what it means to be God's people, maybe in a way that we haven't considered. The Bible starts with a garden and then ends with a garden city, a place where God's people dwell together and enjoy the unity and perfection that uh, we can enjoy when we are in communion with God and properly in communion with each other. Now, I know this is hard to believe. This is hard to believe because so many times we are disappointed by the experiences that we have to, f- have to you know, find, or we find ourselves in in church environments, and we imagine uh, you know, uh, the people that we're surrounded by as being people we're kind of stuck with. 
you know, kind of being stuck with, not just on Sunday morning, but for all eternity. And uh, that prospect is not necessarily something that sets the heart singing. Sometimes, you know, we're obviously uh, disappointed with ourselves as well. But I want you to know that what we're describing here when it comes to this city is a finished product in the book of Revelation. But in terms of how we uh, kind of know it and experience it now, it's a work in process. It's important to remember that because have you, have you been uh, to uh, construction sites and seen things being built? Isn't it the case that uh, there's a lot of mess in a situation like that? And even though, uh, because God's work in Christ is finished and complete and as good as done, that doesn't mean that we who are redeemed and are being gathered together to enjoy communion with God and with each other for all eternity are living in that finished product yet. Every week when we gather together, we see stuff on the floor, debris, things that uh, kind of get in your nose and make you sneeze. <laughs> just, just there, it, it's, it's a mess. But uh, it's worth participating in nevertheless. Now, I, I was involved in construction, and uh, you know I was actually a home improvement contractor for a while, earned my way through seminary working in a construction field. And it's always uh, been a fascinating thing for me as a person who's been involved in building things and selling people on the things that I've built to see sort of the process by which a person, you know, sort of comes to realize that this is actually happening, that this is kind of real. You know, when, when the, 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 the building is just a drawing on a piece of paper, you know, it doesn't seem like it's real yet, right? And then when the site is cleared, it seems like you know, it just will never end, this site clearing and the site prep work and they, even the laying of the foundation. It doesn't really seem like anything is happening, even though a great deal is happening during that entire time. The only time that most people really think that something has happened is when the frame goes up. And you can see, like, the outlines. You can see the two-by-fours. You can see it all framed in and then enveloped. And then you're like, wow, it's almost done, but it's actually not. There's, like, a whole lot more to do, like internal wiring and plumbing and all of the insulation needs to be installed and the finish work and so forth. But it's kind of the way it works. And I think that's the way it is with us in the church. It's sort of like, okay, we can kind of see that this is a work in process and we're kind of impatient for it to get done. But I think what we ought to do is take uh, sort of hope and, and, and find encouragement in the fact that from God's perspective, it's done. And because that's the case, it's as good as done. God isn't subject to time and space limitations like you and I. Uh, from God's point of view, it's done. And because God says it's so, it's so. And I'll return to that, uh, that theme in, in a little bit. But what I'd like to do now is uh, point out to you four things uh, that we see God deliver people from. These are places that are good to be from. You know, there are places that are good to be, and then there are places that are good to be from, like Camden, New Jersey. Camden, New Jersey is a good place to be from. Other places are a good place to be, like Hawaii or the Pacific Northwest and Battleground. But anyway, so here we are looking at places that are good to be from. Take a look at verse 4. We're told there in verse 4, some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city dwell in. These are people who find themselves in the desert. One of the things that uh, 
we see here in this verse is that there are, are people who find themselves in the desert looking for a city and uh, they're failing to find it. I remember when I was a kid, my father, my mother, they were seekers. This was the 60s. Everybody was seeking. Nobody was finding. Everybody thought what they were looking for was in California, and now we know that that was really dumb. Everybody's trying to get out of California now, but back in those days, everybody wanted to be in California because that's where, you know, all of your dreams came true. I remember years ago, I was in California. I was down in Hollywood, and I'd walk around uh, with some friends who had a ministry there, and, you know, they were reaching out to kids who were living on the street, kids who had come from all over the United States with a dream. What was that dream? What do you associate Hollywood with, right? The movies. You know what Hollywood is actually like? Drug addiction, homelessness, really seedy businesses. <laughs> it's, it's not where you want to be. And in my own family, uh, my folks were seekers. Eventually, they found something, and it was a bad thing. It was the Church of Scientology. I grew up in the Church of Scientology. That stuff that you hear about the Church of Scientology, it's all true. It's nuts. It's an absolutely nutty place. You don't want to find yourself there. And God delivered me from my distress in that place. A lot of people are looking for stuff that uh, uh, just doesn't exist because it's not where they're looking. In fact, they can be kind of blind to the stuff that's right there next to them, and they can't see its value. There's a marvelous story that G.K. Chesterton uh, begins orthodoxy with. If you ever get a chance to read Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, I encourage you to do that. If for no other reason, he has a way of putting things like no one else. But he starts off with this, this uh, illustration, and let me read it to you here because it's, it's, it's pretty fun. And it's getting, to this, it's getting at this point. Uh, he said, uh, I have often had a fancy of writing a romance about an English yachtsman who, is slightly, who slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Seas. There will probably be a general impression that the man who landed armed to the teeth and talking by signs will plant a British flag on the barbaric temple which turned out to be the pavilion at Brighton. Chesterton didn't like the pavilion at Brighton. I, I looked it up and I could see why. But the, the point is, is that a lot of the time when you're seeking, the thing that you're seeking for actually is right next door and you're just blind to it. Sometimes kids grow up in the church. They're enamored by the promise of something exotic and far away. They discover that what they thought would be really great to, in, you know, to, to, to see and to actually uh, belong to once they actually get there is no different than where they were before. In fact, some of the things that they took for granted turned out to be, turned out to be really wonderful, and one of those things is the church. Kids who grow up in the church who sometimes are enamored by the idea of going somewhere else and finding that thing that they think they're missing discover the hard way that they missed what was right in front of them all along. If you're like that, if you're one of those kids, I encourage you to open your eyes, to see what you're missing. Some great stuff is right there in your life right now, and you devalue it. You don't understand just how marvelous it is. We saw this all the time when I lived on Cape Cod. When you live on Cape Cod, you actually are like living in like paradise. But when you live there, it's sort of like, yeah, whatever. 
And then you move away. And you realize after you're away, you know what? The Cape is pretty awesome. <laughs> and so the Cape uh, finds a lot of people moving back, back to it uh, after time. I think that's often what's hap what happens with, with young people who grew up in the church, who fail to appreciate just how marvelous the things are that they find themselves surrounded by. They devalue them. They don't understand just how marvelous those things are. And then they move away. And then they realize, what was I thinking? I was really stupid. I thought I was in the desert when I was actually in some place really good. Now I am in the desert. Why did I move here? Why would I want to live in Hollywood, California? Anyway, you get the drift. We're blind to our surroundings. And God delivers people who find themselves in the desert. And why did they... Why does God do that? Because they cry out. They cry out to the Lord. We see that in verse 6. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. Next, let's take a look at verse 10. Some people find themselves in the desert and cry out to the Lord. Some people are in darkness, and because they're in darkness, they cry out to the Lord. Verse 10 reads, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. Why? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. They had light, in other words, but they turned away from the light. And because they turned away from the light, a shadow was cast over their lives. And now they find themselves bowed down with hard labor. See that in verse 12? And because they're bowed down with hard labor, they fall down and there's none to help. So they're consigned hard labor. There's a, you know, a, a, contra a contrast that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount between the way that's broad and the way that's narrow, the broad, easy way that leads to destruction, the narrow, hard way that leads to life. You can either eat your dessert now or later is kind of the, sort of the, the, the dilemma that we find ourselves with uh, in or the situation we find ourselves in. When we receive God's counsel and uh, are led by him, initially there's a harshness to the experience that's, well, distasteful and we don't like. But the further we walk in the ways of the Lord, the easier the, get, the, the walking go or gets and the easier the way becomes. And the reverse is true when we turn away from the counsel of the, of the Lord rely upon our own insight and wisdom, which is actually foolishness, and eventually find ourselves in a very difficult a place uh, under hard labor. Now, I think this is something that, if you've not experienced it already in your own life, you've probably witnessed it in the lives of other people. Have you ever noticed that people generally don't learn? Not only do they not learn from their own experiences, they don't learn from other people's experiences either. They, everybody seems to believe that they're the exception. Have you noticed this? It's like I, I've, I've known families where there's been like seven brothers and the oldest brother was an absolute jerk and a moron and he gave himself over to sin and then the second one does the exact same thing and the third one does the exact same thing. you go all the way down the line and you get to like number six or seven and you think, why can't you like learn from example? <laughs> Do you have to experience this for yourself? And is that the only way it'll be real? Can't you just say, you know what? That particular way of living is really stupid. Look what becomes of it. My oldest brother, my next brother, my next brother. And, but no, it's going to be different for me. I'm going to be the guy that is the exception to the rule. But even 
the, pe the people who've done the same dumb thing over and over again continue to do the same dumb thing, if you notice that. Now, you don't even have to look at other people. You can say to yourself, why do I keep doing these dumb things? Well, it's because you have uh, not attended to the counsel of the Most High. And because that's the case, you are uh, bowed down with hard labor. In other words, the consequences of your behavior has, has, has caught up with you, and you're experiencing what it means to be cut off from the Lord. We see this in, this, in the story of the prodigal son. Everything is smooth sailing when, this, when the story begins, right? Fat bank account, lots of friends. By the end, what do you have? Nothing in the bank account, no friends, and pigs. And it's only at that point that the guy comes to himself. Wouldn't it have been great if he had come to himself before he exhausted the bank account? No, he had to get to that point. But God is gracious, and, that, and the purpose of the story is to demonstrate God's graciousness. And uh, when the prodigal son realizes what he's done and the stupidity of his own behavior, he turns around, goes back home, and is received. And his return is celebrated. The next uh, episode that we have uh, on uh, display here for us uh, concerns the gates of death. Look at verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near the gates of death. We're talking about people who don't know what good is even when they see it. I was reading a, a little while ago about a, a boy who didn't eat anything but peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for years. Now, I like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, just like anyone, or like most people, I should say, unless you're allergic to peanut butter. But um, even, a, even uh, you know, a little boy needs something more than that in order to thrive. And this boy, because he f only ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and because his parents uh, catered to this behavior rather than correct it, uh, found himself in the hospital. I don't know the nature of the physical problem that he was dealing with, probably some kind of malnutrition. <laughs> uh, but there he was. And not only uh, can we find ourselves in a difficult situation because uh, we turn away from God's law, we can find ourselves in a, a difficult situation when we can't even recognize the goodness of the, of the, of the, of the Lord and how he cares for us and we reject the things that are uh, there to nourish us. So what this demonstrates is that wisdom, which is something that we really do need, is, uh, is an acquired taste. And then until we acquire that taste, we're going to find ourselves uh, right there at the gates of death, um, experiencing the, the consequences for our foolishness. So these, these first three situations, uh, in which the person who is uh, you know, at, at a loss and in need of deliverance, in each of those situations, the, he cries out to the Lord, and the Lord hears him and delivers him. But this last one, I think, is, a, is one that's uh, worth noting for uh, a reason that I think I'll be able to, to demonstrate in a moment. Look at verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. 
Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. In the first three examples, we see people turning away from the good things that the Lord has for us. And because that's the case, people find themselves in distress and they cry out to the Lord. But in this last case, we see somebody or we see people who are simply trying to, to do as best they can uh, or, or uh, receive, enjoy the good things of this world with the efforts that they can, can exercise toward that end. But nevertheless, the world that we live in is scaled in such a way and we are small in relationship to it that we are vulnerable and consequently uh, we can find ourselves overwhelmed by the circumstances that we experience and find ourselves in even though the thing that we are looking for is not bad in itself but it's simply uh, just simply beyond our ability to uh, acquire in our own strength. And we find ourselves surrounded by this unstable environment in which uh, we're at a loss. At any given moment, something could happen. We could lose a job, we could lose a loved one, we could find ourselves ill. Circumstances uh, that in themselves um, are not necessarily directly uh, connected to our disobedience, but nevertheless just are the conditions that we live with because we are finite creatures. Creatures who need God's help in order to thrive and enjoy safety in a world that is as out of scale as the world that we find ourselves in. In other words, we're small, the world is big. And there are times where the vicissitudes of life can send us just into the air or down into the depths, like we find in this particular image of, of sailors on the sea in the midst of a raging storm. And it's in those moments, even though there's nothing that we've done that in itself is ostensibly sinful in character, nevertheless we find ourselves in need of help. And it's at that moment that some people turn to the Lord and cry out and God delivers them. And that's this sort of marvelous taxonomy that we have in this, in this psalm, these different situations that we find ourselves in and in each of those situations we can cry out to the Lord and enjoy the deliverance that He can provide. And it's with those things in mind that the psalmist at the very end says this in verse 43, Whoever is wise, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Because the Lord can deliver us from our troubles, from those evil uh, circumstances uh, that afflict us, the punishments even that we deserve, the Lord can deliver us if we call out to Him and ask for Him to deliver us. Now when it comes to this uh, matter of living our lives, I'd like you to consider something. And I think uh, this very, the, the way the psalmist ends this psalm is, is useful for this meditation. I'd like you to consider the, the fact that we can't see what, the t what tomorrow uh, holds. Uh, the, there is a sense in which, uh, as Christians, we can believe that there is good in store for us because of God's promises. But nevertheless, even with that in mind, 
you and I are in the dark when it comes to what will happen tomorrow. I mean, really, tomorrow. What's in store? Um, we have a, a sense the, that the future is bright for us, but we only see it uh, as, as though we're looking through a glass darkly. And in a sense, because that's the case, each of us have to make choices with partial information. The question is, is what is the information that we're going to believe? And because this is the case, uh, everybody, when it comes to the choices that they make, is making a kind of bet. Let me ex explain a little more what I mean by that. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, great mind, uh, a, uh, a, a great mathematician. I think he invented a calculator for his father when he was like a teenager. He's that kind of brilliant, or was that kind of brilliant. And he, be he became a, a, a very uh, uh, ardent Christian uh, after an episode in his life in which he had nearly lost his life. Uh, and his, tr his uh, conversion was so remarkable that he commemorated it by writing a note to himself and then placing that note into the lining of his jacket so that he would ho hold it over his heart for the rest of his life. And the note read, I have found him. Not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he writes, fire. And then 70 times the word joy. Now, he is famous for a number of things that I noted, but one of the things he's famous for is something known as Pascal's Wager. And sometimes Pascal's Wager is presented as a proof for the existence of God, but that's not really what he was getting at. Essentially, the wager runs like this. He says, if there is a God and serving him will bring about eternal returns uh, and uh, not serving him means eternal punishment, then you should bet on God. <laughs> you know, that's the wager. Now, if there is no God, he says, and he's just, you know, making a statement that's uh, hypothetical in character. If there is no God, then that means that there is no punishment or reward, and consequently, uh, to make that choice doesn't uh, bring about any return. In other words, if I say there is no God and there is no God, then there is no you know, sort of return for thinking that or making that bet. And so consequently, Pascal says, make the bet on God. Now, is that meant to be a proof? No. Is it even meant to be some way of encouraging you to choose God uh, when you maybe are disinclined to do so? Not, 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 that's not actually the case. What he's really getting at is that you have to make the choice. In other words, there is no like third option. There's no neutral ground. Either you choose through your behaviors in believing in God or you choose against believing in God. There is no third option. With that in mind, and as we consider what we have here, what is the basis for our choice and your choice? I think that the choice is informed by these promises and these realities that are, that are uh, described here uh, in the last few verses of this, of this psalm. 
He says in verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow seal, seeds and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessings they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and, the, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. We can choose to live by what we see or live by faith. That's the fundamental choice that we are presented with. Now, it may seem as though the best bet is to live by what you can see, like Lot. Remember Lot with Abram? They're both prospering, and there's contention between the husbandmen of Lot and the husbandmen of Abram. And so Abram uh, meets with Lot and says, hey, let's not, let's not fight. Let's separate. You make a choice. I'll take the opposite. And Lot looks out over the valley, the Jordan Valley, and sees that it's well watered and a beautiful place to dwell in. And so he makes his choice. He chooses to go into the valley and to dwell in the, in the, uh, in the regions of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because that's the case, um, well, what befell of Sodom and Gomorrah was something that affected Lot in ways that you can read about in the Old Testament. But Abraham believed God's promises and knew that the God who made those promises is the one who makes the world as we see it. And what we see at any given moment can look good or look bad, but the one who orders all things can take what looks good and bring it to ruin and take what looks ruinous and barren and deserted and make it prosper. And we're told that we, as Christians, should live by faith and not by sight. Faith in what? Faith in what God has said. Faith in what God has promised. And what that means is that we can't really trust what we see. We can't really trust our, our uninformed judgments. In fact, what we should do is believe God even in the face of all of the things that seem to belie the, 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 the truth of what he's saying. We should believe him because he can bring to pass things that don't have any existence at the present time. That's the God that we serve. So we should trust him, live by faith in what he says, and not by sight what we can see. And this is the essence of wisdom. And that's what we should consider. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let him consider the steadfast love of the Lord, the Lord who can deliver us in the midst of desperate circumstances, the God who can bless us when we feel like we're completely surrounded by a desert wasteland and that there's nothing that... Uh, 
uh, is in our vicinity that uh, we can be grateful for. Trust in the Lord because of his promise and because of uh, the fact that he's delivered in the past. If we are wise in this way, we will enjoy uh, the blessings of God, not only privately, but with one another. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, as I've meandered through this psalm, touching upon various matters, I know in my own mind uh, I have ha seen the various circumstances or people that, that these descriptions have brought to mind. And I can think about even episodes of my own life. And I imagine that's the case for those who are here uh, today worship you, worshiping you in this place at this time. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to trust you uh, and call out to you when we find ourselves in need. But also I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to live by faith and not by sight and believe that uh, the things that you can bring to pass are what we ought to be living for. And we should uh, consequently not give ourselves over to our own judgments, but instead believe the things that you've promised us because uh, you overrule and are the God who is just and brings to pass the things that are uh, in the interests of your people. And I say these things in Jesus' name, amen.